Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Faith, Tech, and Space podcast. I'm your host, Rich Hay from WindowsObserver.com. Good to be with you on today, the 30th of August, Sunday, the 30th of August, almost the end of the month and the start of September coming up this week. Uh, things are going to get busy again. We're going to talk about all the kind of busy that's coming uh, in my schedule and things like that that we usually share about. I want to start off, though, with opening up a little discussion on a story I saw this week. As any of you listening know, that we're in the midst of this pandemic and there's varying levels of people's participation in mask wearing or no mask wearing or businesses and social distancing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the, the things that I just can't even put my head around the idea of is going back into a movie theater right now. With everything that's going on, I just can't imagine going in and sitting in a movie theater for, for two, two and a half, three hours to watch a movie. Uh, you know, it just, it, it it's just a very uncomfortable thought. You know, going in and out of a supermarket to get some groceries real quick where I'm I'm very efficient and I do my thing and I'm in and out, it's very brief, is one thing. But going and sitting still in the midst of other people, even with social distancing, even with quote-unquote mandatory mask wearing um, when you're not eating, so that means people are taking off masks to drink and eat, just, just bugs me a lot. And there was an interesting story in the New York Times this week about big budget films finally starting to be released again for the first time since March, since everything shut down back in March for the pandemic. And the question is, are audiences going to go? And the initial kind of indications with these first couple of big budget movies this week was the new Mutant film, I think, uh, from Disney. Very low attendance at a couple of different examples. And then next week, Tenet, Christopher Nolan's new film. So it'll be interesting to watch and see what happens with that because there's a lot of great blockbuster movies that I'm excited about seeing. Top Gun 2, Maverick, Top Gun Maverick is one for certain. And there's others that are out there kind of pending. You know, they've done some releases on, uh, what do you call it, um, on streaming services, right? Little, you know, expensive kind of things. Mulan is coming to Disney. That's going to be $30 to stream. Other movies have come out and are that expensive. Um, the new Fatima movie has just come out and been released this past Friday. It's available on Amazon Prime to rent for $19, I think. Now, for two adults that would normally go to a movie to do that, I'm happy with my um, with my 4K TV. It would be a good stream on my 4K TV. Uh, that's very reasonable considering what you would have paid to go to the movie theater. But I, I just don't know that the audiences are going to flow back into movie theaters like that. I think people are hoping for. Another update on the new PC build, um, testing a, a, I think I mentioned this when I talked about the build. There's this, there's this uh, technology for solid state drives called, uh, they're called NVMe drives, or, and they run on the PCIe bus, the PCI Express bus on, bus on your computer, on the motherboard. <clears throat> Excuse me. M2 is the form factor. It's, it looks like a stick of gum in a lot of ways. So anyway, I, I had an older one from an HP that kind of had the battery blow up, on, not blow up, physically blow up, but it swelled up because it was going bad. So I opened the case, got rid of the battery, and then I, I junked the rest of the laptop. But I did pull out the uh, M2 SSD that was in there. The benefit of these style of SSDs is they have direct access to the PCIe bus on the motherboard, which means there's like four channels of data to be able to go back and forth between the drive and the CPU uh, via the motherboard. So it's extremely fast. And so what I did was um, I, I set this up as my main drive 
and I did some tests against the SATA 3 drives that I have in the system. Now, they run at 6 gigabit a second, or I think that's the, the what they're labeled as. But I did some comparison. But these are standard SSDs, right? They're the kind that use SATA cables at SATA 3 standard. You plug it into your motherboard. You can plug it into any port. It doesn't matter. We don't remember the days of the hard drives when you had to put the little pins on there to make it whether it was primary or master or, or slave or something like that oh my goodness that was crazy times um but i took this drive and i and i've done and run a comparison with it and the scale of difference between these pcie pci express ssds the m2s compared to your standard kind of sata ssds is unreal i ran a test so i've got i wrote this up at windowsobserver.com to kind of share the the performance and i did a couple different charts one's a line chart and you can see man that thing going way up real quick and and then everything kind of operates about the same at different levels of uh write test and then it kind of escalates very quickly but I did a high-low, right? So it runs on averages. The numbers I used were averages. So I did a high-low comparison. And ev the four drives I tested were all, one was as low as 30 uh, megabytes a second. That was a SATA 3 SSD. That was a crucial 256, 256 gigabyte. Next up was a crucial one terabyte SATA SSD running on, on SATA 3. That was 39 megabytes a second on average. And then uh, the, two, the two PCIe uh, uh, disks, one was, P, one was PCIe 3, generation 3. That ran at 49 megabyte a second, low. And then on the on the other one that was a PCI Express four gener fourth generation, it was at 54 megabit a second. The big differences came in the in the peaks. So on the two SSDs, say to three SSDs, they were both around 500 megabyte average a second. One was 510, one was 490. Now step up to the third generation PCI Express um, SSD, the M2, 1998 or 1,989 megabyte per second average. And then step up again to the PCIe 4, fourth generation disk, and that was 2,536 megabytes per second on average in these tests. Just an amazing kind of scale of advancement on easily in the first one about five times as fast, and then you pick up another couple factors uh, on the faster one, on the PCIe 4, generation 4. Uh, just amazing. So if, if the newer motherboards have these M2 slots, it is definitely the way to go if you want to do that. Um, so I got links here, of course, to the uh, uh, the story I wrote on Windows Observer with the charts, and you can take a closer look at that. And then the other kind of technical thing I'm, I'm doing, I recently reset my Surface Laptop 3, and I decided to just use PWAs. So progressive web applications are becoming more and more kind of normal for most things. And most, especially in Edge, uh, the new Edge based on Chromium, you can install these PWAs through the app. Even if it's not a quote-unquote PWA, you can still install the site as an app. So um, I'm good to, on the Surface Laptop 3, I'm doing that. Now, I am going to use inbox apps, I decided. such I can, I can do sticky notes as kind of an, a PWA. Excuse me. It will install it. But I've decided I'm going to use the inbox app. So I'm still going to use things like the Photos app and uh, Snip and Paste, uh, Snip and uh, all that stuff. But and also sticky notes because in my personal opinion, I tweeted this out a couple of weeks ago. Sticky notes is a more reliable way to move text data between devices than the new Windows clipboard that has that same capability. 
Uh, it, I mean, it, it just does. You paste something into a new note on a sticky note, go to the other machine, and it's there. It syncs within seconds, and it's a great, reliable way to get text data back and forth between machines. Um, and so I'm going to do that for a while and see how that goes, see how it impacts performance, see how it impacts battery life, and things of that nature. I was running the dev channel on the Windows Insider program uh, on this device, and I've since now gone back to 20, I've gone back to the production release version 2004, and then I put it on 20H2 because as we're going to talk about in a minute, 20H2 is very close to being released. All right, so there's our open. Let's talk a little bit about the face stuff that's going on. Uh, it's been another quiet week when it comes to these things with a couple of exceptions. Yesterday, which would have been the 29th of August, uh, my cohort and I, there are six other men in my cohort, us and our wives had our vocations board interview. We did this via Zoom, um, and so the, the vocations board was present, and we were given our scheduled times, and we, we used Zoom to connect with people. And basically, the vocations board interview is a, is a review of our first year uh, information. So we were we are considered aspirants during this first year. It's our aspirancy year, and so we get interviewed by the vocations board, and we're asked different questions. And they have stuff on us. They have our classwork and know how our grades are. They have some papers that we wrote throughout the course of the year that talked about our pastoral experiences and things of that nature. And then they have some questions for us, a handful of four or five questions from the board, which I think was a total of about nine people. And the board includes uh, deacons, priests, uh, the spouses of a couple of those deacons as well. So it's a pretty standard setup uh, for our diocese. And it's the same board that interviewed us last year when we were applying to interformation. Uh, for the permanent diaconate. And I say when we applied because it is a, a joint thing, right? My wife has to had to grant permission uh, last year in a written letter to the bishop for me to enter the aspirancy year. We both had to write letters this year, handwrite letters this year, including a letter from my wife uh, that said she continued to support my entry into the right of candidacy. So and it goes all the way until uh, God willing ordination in, in less than two years where she also has to grant permission for that to happen as well. So that's why I say we. Um, so vocation board done. It went very well, I thought. Uh, it was a nice, it was a good interview, good questions. Um, and now uh, in a couple weeks, we start our local classes already. So this break we've had for the last several weeks has been really nice. And it's been very welcomed and a chance to kind of recharge and refocus. And, of course, in this period of time, I've actually, I think this may be the fourth podcast that I've gotten out in this four or five week period. Um, so it's been nice to be able to do that on a regular basis, too. And I like the routine. So maybe now I've got the routine down where I can still bring this every week or so. That's the goal anyway. We'll see how that goes as classes start. But local classes start on the 12th of September. Uh, that will be a social justice class. And we will do that on Zoom here locally. And then a couple days later, we officially start the fall semester with the Josephinium, um, the Pontifical College Josephinum, which is based out of Ohio. And that's where we do our online classes, and we start with fundamental theology on the 14th of September. Uh, our right of candidacy, uh, you know, expecting that our vocations board interview went well. Our letters have been accepted by the bishop. The bishop gets briefed on the vocations board interviews and our petition for the right of candidacy. Uh, we, my cohort and I and our spouses will um, experience the right of candidacy here in a few weeks with the bishop at a, celebrating the mass for it. And we will pre- be presented at that point as candidates for holy orders, no, no longer aspirants, but candidates. And then we continue into our second year of formation. 
and that's kind of how we go. That's kind of where it's headed. So uh, your continued prayers and support for that, um, for my, not only myself, which I do appreciate, but for my cohort as well and our spouses and the staff who's teaching us, our mentors, our spiritual directors, all those people that are involved in that process in helping us along this journey, along this path of discernment, to, to make sure we're hearing the truth, to make sure we're hearing the true call uh, to this ministry. So you, all of that is appreciated, no doubt about it. And I wanted to give you one link here to send you off to read, and this is an interesting read from um, a young lady, uh, a mom, uh, who is nine months pregnant, lives in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and so if you've been watching the news and pay attention, Lake Charles just took a, a pretty much a direct hit from uh, Hurricane Laura. Uh, their house did suffer some damage and things of that nature, but the reason this, her name is Katie McGrady, uh, and she's a speak, Catholic speaker, and she speaks to youth groups and other things, and she does radio and writing and all and podcasting and stuff like that, but um, she wrote kind of a story about having to evacuate at nine months pregnant. She's got a three-year-old child, a husband, of course, and they had to evacuate their home and leave their home behind in this zone that was due to get hit very heavily by Hurricane Laura. Uh, I follow her on Twitter, and uh, she has. they have had some damage at their home, but their home still has a roof, doesn't look to have any uh, broken windows or things like that, And but they do have some damage that has to be dealt with. But, the, you know, three or four days on, they still don't have power. But this story is just a kind of a great insight into what goes through people's minds when they have to evacuate. I mean, it is definitely a mindset. I can remember when I was stationed in uh, Virginia Beach, and I was on a ship out of Norfolk, if hurricanes threatened, we were required to go get on the ship and take the ship out to sea because it could survive out at sea better and we could run away from the storm, you know, steam away from the storm and leave our families behind. So I get the sense of leaving things behind, leaving the home behind, leaving everything that you've lived for and that you that you have behind. And so it's just a really great insight. And so I thought I would share that with you guys. Okay, in the tech main world, let's talk Windows Insider this past week. Um, we've had uh, a dev channel release that was build 2201. Not, not anything new in it per se, although I'm going to mention here in a minute something that someone found new. It wasn't documented in the release notes. So build 20201 is the current build in dev channel. In beta, we have uh, build 19042.487. That is 20H2, right? So that is the release that's coming this fall. And then at the same time, they released a uh, cumulative update for 19041.487. That is the the release preview channel that is currently running Windows 10 version 2004. That was the release we got back in May. Now we're getting very close to the release of 20H2 um, as a cumulative update, kind of like we did last year. That will get released sometime, we think, in September, October timeframe, probably October. Uh, but one thing Microsoft did do is they went out to businesses and said, if you want to pre-release validate this, it's time. You can do that. Um, don't forget, beta channel builds are fully supported by Microsoft. So if you do test it out and you run into a problem, you can reach out for support. Um, and then um, dev channel, of course, is very different from that, right? Dev channel is pre-release. And Def Channel is building towards 21H1, we believe. Although it's not designated to any certain release, it certainly will be where 21H1 comes from. Most likely when 20H2 moves out of beta and goes into release, we will see Dev break out in that way too. Uh, I did write up my monthly, new monthly. I guess this is now a, a pattern. I wrote one in July for all the new builds, the Insider Channel update. 
I just wrote another Insider Channel update for August, and we kind of caught up on all the builds that have been released over the last month, the updates that have come out, and the status. Um, for those of you on 20H2 or want to try out 20H2 in a clean install, they did release ISOs uh, to the Insider website, so I've got a link to that if you're looking for to do that. I've got a link to the story about the commercial pre-release validation for 20H2. Now, Microsoft is targeting businesses here. Um, because they want businesses to pay attention to this and to think about installing this cumulative update. And since it's just a cumulative update to version 2004 that we just had released in May, it's a fairly simple upgrade and should not disrupt uh, you know, the kind of normal flow of things. It's not a full-blown build, new build release. Uh, and then the other interesting thing uh, that was discovered by some folks this week after the release of 20, uh, uh, build 20201, the latest dev channel build, was that there is a setting showing up that to archive apps that aren't being used. So this is interesting because I think Apple does this, and I'm not sure about Android, but I, I think it's done on mobile platforms. So if you don't use an app for a while, it will archive it. So it won't remove it totally, but it'll, get rid of, it'll archive it, keep your settings, and then when you go to use it again, it will download the app and uh, install it and then apply your settings and your data and give you access once again. Well, this is very similar to that in that if it's from the Windows Store and you haven't used the app in whatever the amount of time is they determine is going to be the standard, it will archive the app, save your data, data still, and then if you ever go back to use the app, there'll be a brief pause while it reinstalls it from the store and then it gives you back access to the app. So I think that's pretty clever. Uh, I don't do this as much on my desktops. But on my Android, I have a lot of apps installed that are odd usage, right? One time many months ago, maybe two or three times in a year. But I don't get rid of them because I have plenty of storage on the phone, so that's not an issue. But on Windows 10, for some people, this may be very, very valuable. So it's a pretty neat feature. Not written up, though. Kind of showed up and people caught it and saw it and started writing about it. The other significant thing that Microsoft did this week was they decided to extend the end of service date for Windows 10 version 1803, right? 1803, we're talking about two years ago, two, almost two and a half years ago, they have decided to extend that. Uh, I want to say, let me pull this up real quick and look and verify May 11th, 2021. So 1803 was originally supposed to expire for support in November of this year in just a few months. They have pushed that out until May of next year. So that is a seven-month extension or so, seven or eight months. So if you're, uh, if you're an enterprise running 1803, that means you're getting a little more support. And this is specifically for enterprise, education, and IoT, not consumer. So 1803 consumer support ran out 18 months after it was released. So that means late. That means you should be on the uh, last fall's cumulative update for version 1909. Um, so that's kind of where we stand with Windows Insider and stuff. But it was a slow feature week compared to the last couple of weeks. And I do got to say the up the cumulative update for release preview and beta full of fixes. A ton of fixes went into that. So it looks like they're really working hard to stabilize those builds to get ready for that release. On the Edge Insider front, we currently stand um, at Edge Canary version 86.621. Uh, you know what, though? I saw somebody tweet Edge Canary 622. So let me check real quick on Canary. Yeah, I missed that. 622.1. 
So right now, Edge Canary is at 622.1. I think I remember reading there were some crashes going on, and that may be pushed out to a fix that didn't come out normal Friday. It was 621 on Friday, I'm pretty sure. On the Edge Developer Channel, we're at version 86 as well, build 615.3. On Edge Beta, we're still at version 85, build 564.41. But this week, Edge Stable moved up from version 84 to version 85. It is on the same build as Edge Beta, 564.41. So that, that Edge Stable just had its most recent update. And in fact, there's a really good summary of what's new. So for somebody who's just on Stable, if you do Canary and Dev and Beta, you've been testing these new features now for, for a while. But because it's been about six weeks or so since uh, Stable Channel got an update, you may not be aware that there's some pretty cool stuff coming. Uh, amongst some of the things that you will see in Stable now with the new update to version 85, uh, collections have improved tremendously. Microsoft Edge Family Safety has moved to an has come to Android version of Edge now. And um, all of these features, so collections has a new send to OneNote. This is a cool feature, by the way. It's available on mobile for iOS and Android. But it basically sends your entire collection to OneNote as, as a uh, section in a book. And it's just terrific because it gives you quick access to everything. Um, so collections send to OneNote, Family Safety, Microsoft Edge on Android now available. Um, and then the, um, what's the other thing here, visual uh, definitions with picture dictionary across the web using the Edge Immersive Reader. Built-in PDF reader support, highlighting and screen reader support. A sync is ready for schools. Uh, and then um, the chatbot in Microsoft Teams, which is powered by Bing, is part of Edge kind of approach to things as well. So they talked about all of that. So Stable has moved forward, uh, definitely moved forward this week with its new release. Uh, let's see, Microsoft News and what's going on. Oh, no, the, actually, there's one more thing about Edge. I caught this headline. It's from uh, Chris Matizic, I think is how you pronounce his name. He does a column called Technically Incorrect. And he wrote, the headline is what caught me. Microsoft makes you really angry, question mark? No, you're not being silly. And his sub his subheader, subheadline is, Microsoft's misguided launch of its very fine new Edge browser has inspired a spirited response, much of it from more confused and angry readers, but some from Microsoft defenders. And he goes in to explain how Microsoft is rolling out Edge, which they've been very public and vocal about. They said it was going to move into version 2004 via Windows Update. That is what's happening. People are getting the update. It's a, it, they, they get the update, and I believe it's an optional update right now. It's going to be part of the fall release. So 20H2, um, 20H2 Edge is going to be part of that release. So you're going to get Edge, and Edge Legacy has got a deadline on it. We learned that Edge Legacy is going to be deprecated sometime next year. So they have to upgrade the systems. I just find it interesting to, you know, the reaction, this, this headline people talking about installing the Edge and things of that nature, but it's not unlike any Edge legacy. I know that Edge, new Edge, right, based on Chromium, is not, quote-unquote, a direct upgrade. It's a whole new browser that they built from scratch, right? But it is a replacement for Edge legacy, and so that's what we're in the midst of. We're in the midst of seeing that change out happen. But, and people are apparently not happy about that, I guess. I don't know. I get more irritated at the fact that when I'm in Edge and I go to a Google property, for instance, that I always get that thing up in the corner that says, don't you want to switch to a faster, better browser for this site? And I say, no, I don't need to because guess what? My new Edge is based on Chromium. 
But it, it's not unlike that same thing, right? I could really spend a lot of time getting angry and upset and frustrated. Why? That, that, that I click the X and I go out. I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. I don't like having to do that every time. Google should allow me to make that choice and then stop. Don't offer it anymore once I've offered it, once it's been offered and declined. Um, but upgrading Edge Legacy to New Edge with Chromium is just a normal kind of generational life cycle kind of thing. I, I, I just, yeah, I, I'm speechless about it, okay, basically. All right, Microsoft News. Big week this week. Surface Duos started to arrive on the desks of some of the main reviewers. Very limited exposure to them, though. They showed off the boxes. They did some unboxings. They could not turn the device on, apparently, in front of any kind of video or pictures or tweet and share um, uh, that experience. They have some lockdowns on as far as what they can share. Uh, and I guess on September 10th, when the device is released, is when the embargo lifts on those. So that's kind of how all these official reviewers, all the normal folks that get these things, are having to approach it. They can't power it on, can't show it off, or anything like that. They can show off the physical device. They can't power it on and show it off. Okay, but so we got some details about the that were shared about the camera app and its features that kind of leaked out, not related to this, but it, before that. Um, but here's the interesting thing, right? AT&T and Best Buy are sticking the Surface Duo display models in their stores now. They are live in Best Buys at AT&T, uh, and anybody can walk in, and everybody and anybody has walked in to these stores and done live videos of the OS, of the software, of the device, of all the things related to it. So it's kind of like two-week early trumping of all those big official uh, reviews, and uh People are getting are feeding out that information, including pictures from the camera, which is apparently performing a little bit better than everybody thought it would. The device's performance, the device's kind of setup and things of that nature. So despite the fact that all these reviewers and YouTubers and influencers got the device and could not show off that aspect of things, it's out there. There are people videotaping themselves or video recording themselves using the device in the AT&T store, in the Best Buy store, and giving everybody a peek at it. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to see it going. Do I have some other links here for Surface Duo stuffs? Absolutely. Got a link here to a couple of different articles of some hands-on with the unboxing videos and the device itself and an opportunity to see the device. Um, and But it's just funny that, that you know, there's the hands-on videos for that stuff that they can't show are out there now. And I've got links to it all for you, so it's in the show notes. Um, so Duo, coming soon, a couple weeks away. I have to, next time I'm out and about, I might have to slide by the Best Buy or an AT&T store and check it out, see what I see. Um, let, what else is going on? Of course, uh, Microsoft has now publicly come out and backed Epic in its fight against Apple over the whole Fortnite and Unreal deal in the Apple App Store. Um, we've got a story here about Epic versus Apple rooting for the users, absolutely. Uh, why Epic can't afford to lose the Unreal Engine in its legal fight with Apple because there's a lot of stuff that performs on the Unreal Engine. So that would have, and as I understand it, the court, a court has ordered Apple, you can't shut down the Unreal support so that other people are not affected by this. But they are, uh, Apple has shut down Epic's account for the game for Fortnite. Uh, in fact, that's my next headline to read. Apple suspends Fortnite maker Epic Games App Store account. Um, and it's kind of crazy, right? So there's a lot still going on there. I think I said a couple weeks ago, 
Epic is going straight down this road. They are not hesitating. It's happened on Android. It's happened on Apple. Uh, looks like they're still getting to support their their Unreal Engine, which is good because that impacts other people, like I said. But um, it's definitely something a lot of people are paying attention to. We'll see how far we'll, this game of chicken is going to end some point, and we'll see who it is that blinks first. Uh, good post here from Jeff Tepper. Tepper, he is the uh, um, corporate vice president for Microsoft 365, and he talks about Teams in this last six months of development on Teams. Probably the most accelerated development on Teams in ever. I mean, it's been a few. It's been three or four years since Teams was first released. But this whole pandemic and work from home and remote work thing has really accelerated that Teams work on doing making changes to this that might have taken a little bit longer if we had not been in this situation. So the innovation has come quickly. And it's, it's good innovation. They've made good changes to Microsoft Teams. I, it, you know, many of us now live inside of Microsoft Teams for meetings and coordination and chat and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's been a good six months for them, but it's been a very crazy, uh, fast-paced six months. Uh, a good story here from Microsoft about the experts that helped Microsoft with its coronavirus response. And we're talking about their on-campus employees, services, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Microsoft 365 saving you time and effort with this new feature called transcription and voice commands in Word. So you can now take and re take a recording and bring it up in Word and get a transcript of it. You don't have to use any other system, any other service. You can do it right in Word. Word can record you live and do a transcription and uh, voice commands in Word. So I actually sat here and tested that this week did some dictation, and it works very well. I was really impressed with how well it works. Still a little challenging around the punctuation and things of that nature. I think my Android does a better job when I uh, voice dictate a text of picking up where I pause and where I start new thoughts and new sentences. Uh, but Word, not so much yet. But I still need to play with it some more, too. But it's a pretty cool feature with the transcription. Paul Therott wrote, wrote about the Android app solution that your phone is now offering with uh, Samsung devices. And, of course, Surface Duo is going to be the one non-Samsung device that will support the app screen or basically you're your, uh, screen sharing your apps from your phone to your PC via the Your Phone app. Um, it's unfortunate it's not for other devices. Another, I've got a OnePlus 7T Pro 5G that is top-end device, and I can't do this app screening on it um, because it's not Samsung and it's not Surface Duo. I get Surface Duo. Why just and Surface and Samsung have got a deal going on with Microsoft, and I get that. But man, it's frustrating that the majority of users are on Android or get the benefits of your phone, but don't get this benefit. So it's a bit frustrating. Uh, also, Microsoft appears to be rebanding Bing. I can't remember if I mentioned this in the last few weeks, but there was some evidence of this coming out, and it's becoming more and more obvious that they are going to rebrand Bing to Microsoft Bing will be the brand name. We're seeing new logos, naming, and stuff like that uh, being tested out on the Bing search engine. And then a new event from Microsoft for uh, entry-level and beginning dev or starting people who are just starting to become devs. It's called Start Dev Change. It's going to be on October 14th and 15th, uh, of course, online. There is a page for an RSVP, two-day virtual event for beginners that are looking to learn new development skills. It'll feature sessions for introductory-level code development and introduction to no-code development tools with the Power Platform. The goal, as they stated, is to enhance your technical skills by setting you up for success with the right tools to help you improve in your current job or prepare you 
to change careers and move into a technical role. So you can go to that page. I've got a link in the show notes, of course, and you can do an RSVP so you can get more information about when that comes in a little less than, I guess that's about, uh, let's see, six weeks, give or take, mid-October. Uh, on the Apple Store front, um, there was some evidence that was shown this week. I'm not going to talk about Epic because I already mentioned Epic in the Microsoft segment. But it looks like there's some changes going on in Spotlight Search on iOS and iPad iOS 14 in the beta that might be indicating that Apple is starting their own search engine. Um, now, this is interesting because if you don't know, Google pays a lot of money to be the default search engine for Apple devices. And it, would it surprise you at all for Apple to figure out a way for them to have their own search engine on Safari for iOS, iPadOS, macOS, iPhone, iPad, Mac, wherever it might be. Um, so there are some indicators starting to pop up that shows that they may be working on their own search engine. Um, and so th this story right here from Koi Wolf, the website koiwolf.news, uh, talks about why they might be doing it. Uh, regulatory stuff, contentious relationship with Google, a Siri and iCloud getting more um, maturing and becoming better and better. Um, Apple doesn't need Google's money. That's a one. Uh, Apple is pouring resources and money into research based on job listings and things of that nature, plus all their AI, machine learning, and natural language processing. In iOS and iPadOS, you can bypass Google search with Spotlight Search, so that gets past the Google thing as well. Uh, and then their Applebot, their web crawler, is starting to show up in more and more places uh, indexing sites. So it'll be interesting to see how this moves forward. Is Apple going to create their own search engine in order to put that as the default in their systems? Now, there's it talked about regulatory stuff, but if you think there's an argument around Apple uh, and their App Store policies, what about Apple and their own search engine, right? Google's already taken a lot of heat because they, they have been, uh, it's been reported in the past that they take liberties with results sometimes and how they display results and things of that in search results on Google.com. Apple's got to be very careful here because that is a serious kind of potential risk for them building their own search engine. So again, this will be something very interesting to watch over the next few months. Uh, on the Google front, I thought this was an interesting story, and so I put it in here, but they're talking about Google's privacy settings, and even Google engineers say they are confused about the, the setting. Uh, the quote that The Verge shared is that the current UI feels like it is designed to make things possible, yet difficult enough that people won't figure it out. Wow. So that's interesting to see. So still stuff going on with privacy and all that kind of thing. Uh, under the miscellaneous tech header, Amazon Halo and Amazon Halo Band, a new service that's supposed to help customers improve their health and wellness coming from Amazon. Uh, it'll be, they, they did detail some stuff. I got a link to the press release from Amazon directly. And then I got a link to a Medium post by Lance Ulanoff who talks about some of the questions he has over this fitness wearable from Amazon. I like the name though, Halo. I think Halo is a cool name. Uh, Halo Band, Halo. Uh, of course, I haven't heard any issues around copyright or anything like that, right? Is that an issue with Halo, the game? I mean, Microsoft is dealing with some copyright issues around their whole DataFlex thing. Could Halo Band or Amazon Halo create an, a branding and trademark issue with Halo, the game, from Microsoft in 343 Industries? Hmm. 
something that makes you go, hmm. And a really good post here from uh, Chiffers.com about meeting burnout. Of course, people are meeting, even though we're remote and even though we're working from home, still doing a lot of meetings. And, and meetings, when you're in a virtual meeting, are very challenging in many different ways than physical and presence meeting. Uh, a really good story here from an FBI informant about the inner workings of how tech support scams are done. It's a really insightful article to pick up some tips to protect yourself from those kind of things that pop up. Uh, Paul Therott also wrote about Microsoft and Oracle's race to finish the acquisition of TikTok. No sooner than I posted that, we get word that maybe Walmart and Microsoft are teaming up for this acquisition. Uh, they're talking numbers like $20 billion for the U.S. operations of TikTok and Walmart. I, I just kind of mind-boggling for Walmart to be involved in that. Pinterest canceled their massive, they, so they had signed a lease in an unbuilt building, um, and, but because of the work from home shift that they has happened, and I think that uh, many companies are going to embrace moving forward, even when the pandemic is over, um, they've canceled a massive office lease that they had uh, signed for this big unfinished building. So I think this is going to be real estate in technical businesses and normal businesses is going to become very different post-pandemic. Um, you know, our company is doing similar things. Um, many companies are doing similar things uh, about that, about real estate, because it's an extremely expensive aspect of doing business. And with this last six months, it's been proven that work from home can be done pretty reliably from home. Uh, whereas before, some people wouldn't have tested it. They got forced to test it. And now they're realizing, hey, this kind of works pretty good. So I think that's going to be very interesting moving forward. Speaking of Medium, I mentioned Medium earlier from Lance Ulanoff. Um, Ev Williams has got a story about the latest updates about Medium itself and its growth. Um, I didn't know this this week, but I saw Owen, Owen um, Williams post about it when I got the link to this article, um, that they do pay writers to post their content behind the paywall. And it can, it can work out pretty good for people. So I, di I didn't realize that was a thing on Medium. I, I'm not a fan of putting my content on Medium. I like to put my content on windowsobserver.com. I have control over it, right? I've had control over that for 25 years. Um, so I'm not sure about putting my content in other people's properties. Um, I mean, well, IT Pro Today is my job, right? That's a very different kind of thing. It's not what I post at windowsobserver.com anyway. Windowsobserver.com is consumerish, gamish, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, you know, to see what they're being able to do and how popular Medium has become. Okay, on the gaming front, uh, Xbox One and Xbox Series X UX got a fresh look this week, a new streamlined experience. I'm on the Alpha Insider Alpha Preview. It's a really slick update. They've made uh, a changes. The visual changes aren't dramatic. It's kind of the same kind of setup. But they've, they've compacted some things. They make things easier to navigate. They put more room between some of the icons and stuff like that. And it's much faster than it was, or at least it seems so. So that came out this week. So I've got a couple links to information about that. The first set of patch notes for the upcoming release of Microsoft Flight Simulator's first patch since it went public a couple weeks ago. That is coming up. Um, that just got posted on August 27th on the weekly development update that the Microsoft Flight Simulator team posts each Thursday. And so it looks like sometime this coming week there will be a patch. All you have to do to get it is to exit out of Flight Simulator and restart Flight Simulator, and it will pick it up once it's released. It looks like it's going to address some of the bigger issues, the crash, the installs, the black screens during the installs, and some stuff like that. 
Um, so it's focused on performance from the perspective of getting it on the system, getting it installed, and getting it up and running. Uh, flight sticks. I mentioned this before. This continues to be a fascinating story. Flight sticks, joysticks, controllers, yokes continue to sell out after the release of Microsoft Flight Simulator. I, I, you know, I, it's a secondary effect, but it's definitely a big secondary effect. I'm glad I have what I've had. I've had my controller for about a year, year and a half. It's a great solid controller. It's actually 10 plus years old from a technology perspective. It's the Logitech 3D Pro Extreme, but it's a great controller for casual gamer, casual simmer. Um, and there's a lot of other options out there, but you can't, they're getting harder to find. And the tertiary, secondary and tertiary market is becoming crazy overpriced. So just hang tight. If you've got an Xbox controller that can connect to your PC, you can fly enough with that too. Kind of like the joystick. You can do more than well enough to explore the sim and use it. Um, <clears throat> there was a story this week I found interesting about playing Flight Simulator in your browser. Um, and it's actually the older version. So uh, version 1982, 84, 88, and 89. And those and use different keys and stuff like that. But you can play those old school versions in um, in a browser. So that's kind of cool. And then Xbox Elite Series 2 controller. There was a long-term update from Brad Sams over at Throt.com to talk about that controller and its reliability, it how it holds up. And he has very positive things to say about it compared to its predecessor, the original Xbox Xbox Elite Series controller. On the space front, let's see what we're talking about now. Uh, space Station 20th anniversary is being celebrated all the time. They're talking about different things about the ISS. Uh, and the latest thing they're talking about is food and how food works on the space station. Um, big anniversary, 40 years ago, preparations were in effect and going for STS-1, the first uh, flight of space shuttle. So that's been 40 years now since that happened. That's just crazy. Um, and then looking to the future, Artemis. So there was an interesting blog post by NASA by um, uh, about Artemis and where we're headed on Artemis, where they're working, what they're doing. Uh, it was by um, Kathy Luters, and she is the new kind of um, uh, person in charge of that kind of part of the NASA stuff. But it it also revealed that it's going to cost a little bit more to get Artemis and SLS going. And that created all the ruckus, right? It was a great update, but what's kind of tucked away in here is the fact that the program is going to cost even more. And it's already well out of budget. And it's kind of one of those things that they're so far down the road, they can't really decide to back off and, and change direction. So it's unfortunate, but that's kind of where NASA is at right now with SLS and Artemis. On the ULA front, I mentioned uh, last week there was a Delta IV rocket uh, launch Delta IV heavy rocket launch coming up for the for the National Reconnaissance Laboratory that actually scrubbed once uh, because of a technical issue. They sorted it out two nights later. They tried again and got all the way to lighten the engines. And at T minus three seconds, it did not launch. There was a an issue, so it's at least a week long scrub before Delta Heavy will go again. I'm kind of glad I didn't get up that night and go check that out. On the SpaceX front today. The 30th of August, they were supposed to have a double header. Uh, this morning, Starlink launch has already been scrubbed um, because of weather. And both times they tried to get the photographers out there to the launch pad, they could not get them out to the launch pad to set up remotes because of the weather, because of lightning. So right now the launch is about 40% chance go with the weather conditions down at the Cape Canaveral. It's that time of the year where the afternoons are full of rain showers and thunderstorms. Um, it's supposed to launch around seven something in about four hours. 
I, w- I, I would venture to say in the next podcast, now they're going to shoot for Tuesday if it doesn't go tonight, but I venture to say we might be talking about the launch on Tuesday as opposed, and this is for the SACOM uh, one Bravo satellite. I got a feeling it's not going to go today due to weather. And then uh, let's close things up a little bit, talking about the, the big anniversary this past week on Monday. 25 years since Windows 5, Windows 95 went public, was generally released August 24th, 1995. Um, That is when I started WindowsObserver.com. Actually, it wasn't WindowsObserver.com back then. It was Silicon Valley Heights, uh, lot 1094. It's kind of, GeoCities was kind of set up like cities and neighborhoods. So you had GeoCities.com, then you had Silicon Valley, which was the neighborhood or the, the city. Heights was my neighborhood and my address was 1094. Eventually, that moved to become another Win95.com in about 90, I want to say 96 or so. No, 99. And then about seven years later, I moved it to WindowsObserver.com. So 25 years ago, this past week, some form of existence of WindowsObserver.com that you go to now existed. Uh, Different address and stuff, but the same premise. So Microsoft celebrated the 25-year anniversary. There's a lot of reminiscing. There's some great stories that came out this week about the history there. So from like um, Michael Gartenberg, Start Me Up, he, he details some of the stories about the first release. And, and by the way, Office 95 was also released on that same day that Windows 95 was released. So people tend to forget about that with the 95 release. Um, when Windows went mainstream, Windows 95 turned in 25. 25 years ago today, Microsoft launched Windows 95. There's a really cool visual tour through Windows 95 betas and collector items. This guy has just spun up a website called betacollector.com, and he has disks and things of that nature from the 95 beta. Just awesome stuff. Uh, did you rem- do you remember the, the Edie Brickle video that was on the Windows 95 CD-ROM? Um, got a link to a story about that. It's called Music by Chance, Edie Brickle, Windows 95, and Music Discovery. So that was pretty cool. And then another Windows Experience blog, they did a really cool video that kind of highlights the changes from 95 until Windows 10. And then if you didn't know this, there is a GitHub repository by Felix Reisenberg, and you can run Windows 95 as an Electron app. It runs on Mac OS, Linux, and Windows. And so you can go run that and get back into 95. I haven't pulled it up myself. I just got the link in here for you, but I think I'm gonna try that out. So that's pretty cool. So it was a big anniversary, right? Big anniversary for Microsoft and Windows 95 and Office 95. But it was a big one for me too. You know, it was 25 years ago that I was at some party. I was stationed in Naples, Italy. I had I was running my first IBM compatible computer. I think it was a 286 with four gig, four gig, four megabytes of RAM and like a 10 megabyte hard drive. It had a Sound Blaster 16 sound card in it, and I had I put it together through a course that I did. And so I was at some function, and somebody mentioned something about building websites in this GeoCities thing. And that was August of '95. I went home and. Um, I looked it up and I started exploring. I started learning and I learned HTML to code HTML before I, we didn't have what you see is what you get kind of stuff um, like we have now. And I happened to be back in the States uh, for the release of Windows 95. So I was in line for the midnight release at a box store to get my copy of Windows 95 to carry back to Italy to be able to install and upgrade my Windows 3.1 IBM compatible 286, 386, whatever it was. Um, Just pretty amazing times in tech, if you remember that. Just pretty cool. Um, it'd be very interesting to hear from all of you all in the comments of this of the show notes in the show page. When did you enter the Windows world? What do, what do you remember about Windows 95 and its release 25 years ago? 
So there you go. That's a wrap on episode 15. Uh, We will hopefully see you. The plan is to see you again next week, just like we did this week, one week, one week. And we will do that for episode 16. But until then, stay safe out there. Be kind to each other and wear your mask and blessings as we keep moving down this road of life. Take care, everybody. Thank you.